Well, good day and welcome to the University of Minnesota podcast, University of Minnesota Agronomy and Extension CropCast. I'm your host, Dave Nikolai, with the University of Minnesota. I'm Extension Educator in Field Crops. My co-host is Dr. Seth Nave. He's Extension Soybean Specialist here at the University of Minnesota. And Seth, we have some very influential guests this morning uh, in northwestern Minnesota. So maybe you want to introduce them a little bit and then let them introduce a little bit more. Yeah, we'll do a really quick introduction to both, and then uh, they can tell us a little bit more about themselves. So we have Dr. Tom Peters uh, from me, uh, joining us from the uh, uh, North Dakota State campus, uh, and he's going to join us in just a minute. And we've also got Zach Foray from Pioneer Corteva. So uh, welcome, folks. And uh, maybe, Zach, if you'd like to introduce yourself a little bit and give us a little of your history and give us your official title there uh, with Pioneer and, and what you do there. Thank you, Seth. Uh, so I'm a product, what we call a product agronomist with Pioneer. So what I do is uh, late stage experimental testing, uh, experimental soybean varieties, corn hybrids. Um, the breeders make the crosses and they do tens of thousands of crosses. And by the time they get to uh, screen them out and get the best ones, uh, to me, I'm down to about 20 corn hybrids between 70 and 90 day relative maturity. And 25 or 30 soybean varieties from late double zero to uh, early group one. And, uh, and I put plots out across the region, Northwest Minnesota and North Dakota. Uh, I also cover a little bit of Montana. Most of the, the plots we do are in the, the Red River Valley area. Uh, and um, I do about 50 or so locations and we evaluate products. And and uh, of the, the 20 corn hybrids I look at a given year, probably five or so get advanced. Uh, to commercial and uh, and six or eight soybean varieties uh, get advanced to commercial products. I've been doing uh, pioneer agronomy for uh, going on 20 years now. And uh, prior to that, I spent some time with the University of Minnesota Extension Service and uh, and then private industry before that too. But uh, been up here in, in Northwest Minnesota now for uh, 20, 23 or, or so years. And uh, so that's, that's kind of the background for me. Tell us your home base, uh, town that you're located in, and I guess you did, a, you know, talk a little bit about Northwest, your your territory. Yeah, so I'm located uh, east of Kirkston, about 20 miles. Uh, home base, home office, and then cover the cover the region. So, um, you know, my typical summer day is 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 driving out and about through the region, taking notes on uh, on products, and, and then starting this time of year, as yield data comes in, then there's there's a lot of uh, data analysis going on and and uh, evaluating performance. Uh, and of course, it's a um, yield is a critical issue, but um, uh, all summer long, we're looking at other agronomic issues uh, too. Well, great. Uh, Tom? I'm Tom Peters. I'm um, an extension sugar beet agronomist. Um, I cover sugar beets in Minnesota and North Dakota, so my appointment is a, a dual appointment between North Dakota State and the University of Minnesota. So I, um, I try to provide growers information on weed management first, um, but I'm interested in all aspects of sugar beet production. And my programs have evolved into weed management, not only in sugar beet, but in crops in sequence with sugar beets, including small grains, corn, and soybean. Well, very good. We wanted to get an idea a little bit about 
how the harvest is going so far. So uh, back to Zach, you indicated that you're getting <clears throat> yield data coming in. Um, what are some general trends and things that you can see for both, uh, you know, not just corn and soybeans, other crops as well uh, that you are um, at least observing in your territory and in, in that particular area of the state? Yeah, so every year is different. Uh, this year we, we came into the season with uh, really good soil moisture across the region for the most part. Um, you know, it's one of those strange winters where we had a lot of snow, but we didn't have a lot of frost. And I, I think that we got pretty good snow recharge. A lot of times the snow melt just moves off and we don't really get much benefit to that moisture. But this year, I think a lot of it soaked in and Tom might have some ob observations on that too. But we started out, I think, with really good soil moisture. Our planting dates were generally um, not early. We were, you know, mid-May before we got in. Uh, and then we had a really good stretch. So they were good, but they weren't great for planting dates. And our, our cropping season was, uh, for the most of the region, was very significantly below normal. So I just looked at some data this morning just to remind myself of how it went. And across a lot of the region I work in, we were at 50 to 60% of normal for rainfall. And that's a uh, that would often spell a disaster. That's that's really, really bad. Uh, and then I looked at the heat and we were above normal for heat. So for corn growing degree units, we ended up two to 300 above normal, which is a lot. So we were significantly warmer than normal, significantly drier than normal. And uh, that might spell for some, some real problems for yield. But we were good moisture early and we dried out late. And I think across the region, for the most part, everybody is really amazed at the yields that they're getting. So uh, first of all, we started with wheat, and I don't work a lot with wheat, but my uh, what I was hearing was that we were really hot. You know, we had a lot of hot weather in June and July. Usually that's not good for wheat. And, and then we did have some dry weather for wheat even early in the season two. And then uh, wheat harvest came and the wheat yields were better than expected. So a lot, most guys were really pleased with their wheat yield because, uh, you know, given the hot conditions they were uh, they were expecting, they may have some decrease in wheat yield, but they were really pretty good. And now we're in the middle of corn and soybean harvest. And I'd say generally a lot of the same thing is true. People are looking at the amount of rainfall they had and, and the long dry period later in the year and, and uh, thinking, you know, that's really going to affect our yields. Um, I was surprised going out and looking at uh, at corn across uh, the region all all summer and into the fall here that we had really good pollination we had really good ear development um a little bit of nosing back but not too much and now when we're hearing some of the yields coming in it's uh, similar to wheat that uh, most places growers are very pleased with the, the yields they're receiving both corn and soybeans they're better than expected based on the kind of moisture conditions that we have and how, how about progress? Um, you know, what do you see in terms of harvest progress out there? I know there's a lot of soybeans went out early. I was up, up in the area two or three weeks ago, and the beans were really going. I think with some of the temperatures, pushed things along quite a bit. I assume that the beans, a lot of beans are out, and corn is going out as well. Yes, I think that's exactly right. There's a lot of beans that have been harvested, and this week I think we'll get a very high percentage of the the beans will be harvested by the end of this week. And, uh, and as guys get going, they'll be moving into corn. We've got some corn harvested. 
um, already, and um, um, they'll be going hot and heavy on corn, uh, you know, as soon as a lot of them get to be. So, look, the weather looks, you know, dry. It looks like good harvest weather for this week for the most part, and so I think we'll make some big progress on on harvest. So, what are some typical yield ranges for corn and beans then? Well, um, you know, I see my plot yields, which are a little, uh, a little. Usually, they're better than average, that kind of thing. But I'd say that, um, you know, we're, we're looking at a lot of forties to sixties for for soybeans um, across the region, and for corn, um, yeah, there's not a lot of corn come off yet, but uh, I've seen some really, really nice yields. So we're looking at at 160s to 180s, and we will have we'll have areas, we'll have fields that will will push 200, which is, which is unusual for us. And I'm sure, you know, there always are those bad areas too. I don't want to give people the impression that the crop is everywhere above normal because there, there are going to be those, those drier soils that dried out and, and yields are going to be poor and that sort of thing. But again, generally they're, they're good and better than expected. Zach, how have been the agronomic characteristics of um, dry, dry summer. How was corn stock strength, and how is it standing in the field? You know, I I've been doing this for a long time, and and you get a little bit of experience on uh, your ability to predict things. And um, a couple of things like uh, I always think of iron chlorosis because uh, we'll go into a year. Iron chlorosis is one of the nasty issues that we deal with. And it might be cool and wet, and I'll think, you know, it's it, it's setting up for some bad iron chlorosis, and then it's not bad. And then other years, you know, we've got really good growing conditions, and I'm thinking, well, we should grow through that chlorosis. Maybe it won't be so bad, and it's bad. That's a that's something that uh, that I've learned that we cannot predict. And stocks is a lot like that. So you look at a year like this year, we had above normal heat, below normal moisture. Uh, we had uh, plants set up for high yields early. Uh, you'd think all of that is setting up for some real stock issues. And uh, I've seen a little bit, Tom, but not very much. I think overall our stock integrity is really, really hanging in there very well for the most part. Well, Tom, what about uh, on the sugar beet side of the ledger, so to speak here? What kind of progress uh, do we have out of the, uh, the valley area and uh, how are the plants doing and, and where are we in the campaign? Yeah, well, just to quickly summarize, um, we planted late, Seth and Dave. We uh, would normally like to plant sugar beets the 10th of April. Well, I would venture to guess that in northwest Minnesota, there were hardly any fields that were planted in the month of April. Um, but the good news is, is after we planted, we had plenty of warm temperatures. So we made up a lot of ground. Um, sugar beet fortunately has a tap root that finds its way to moisture and our yields are, are, um, are very good this year. And because we've been on the drier projection for most of the summer, the sugar content of our, our sugar beet crop is, is outstanding. Um, I'm hearing reports from last week of 18 to 19% sugar, which is outstanding. Anytime, in my opinion, 
you can touch 18, you're doing really well. So it's a very, very good year. Um, overall yields in the high 20s, depending on where you're producing your crop, and then sugars in the 18s and 19s. So um, I think that bodes well for, for the cooperatives uh, this year and farmers as well. We should make a note here that if you're not familiar with it, we're talking about 20 tons to the acre here. And then uh, on the financial equation in terms of growers, remuneration, um, is it still true, obviously, the percent sugar makes a difference in that final payout? It depends on the cooperative, but in general, Dave, yes, it does matter. In terms of, uh, we got cold temperatures here just recently in, in part of southern and central Minnesota down to that freezing area. Uh, for both of you, has that taken care of some of these volunteers and in some of these weeds, water hemp and, and so forth? Um, are we to the point now where they're a non-issue? You know, well, uh, go ahead, Tom. We have not had a frost yet in Fargo, Dave. So um, things are, crops are, weeds, everything is still actively growing. So um, we have not done anything to really reset the cycle here. Zach. Exactly. Yep, exactly. We uh, saw that uh, maybe over the weekend there were parts of North Dakota that did get uh, maybe a killing frost that did, did do some. I think a lot of growers would really like to have a killing frost. To, there's a few green beans out there and things like that, and uh, they'd like to even everything up. But we really, yeah, across most of the region, haven't had a killing frost. As long as we're on the green bean thing, so what do the green, uh, you have, you look at a lot of soybeans, Zach, do you uh, see some green stems out there in some of these fields, and uh, was it worse this year? Is it uniform across fields, or do you have sporadic plants that have some of this kind of green stem thing, or is it just related to really warm temperatures and no killing frost? What What's your observation on the soybean side? Yeah, I think there's a lot of factors that go into that, Seth, and uh sometimes what we see too is you get really dry and then parts parts of the field they get really dried out um they, they look like they're senescing and then you get a rainfall and then they green back up again so we've had some of that so some unevenness out there um uh, as we got some some later rains um you know I, I think anytime we have a really late frost like we have this year um a lot of times things don't just all ripen perfectly and so uh, we do have some of that, that green stem thing. I think more than average this year because of the kind of conditions that we've, we've had this year. Um, it doesn't seem to be holding up the harvest too much, uh, but there are specific fields and situations where I think they would like to see a frost to, to uh, even everything on. Yeah, I just wondered about your regional perspective because it's it's so different when I you know when I talk to my colleagues and and tell them about the complaints of farmers in southern Minnesota and you know we have people in um, North Carolina and Arkansas that have beans that are completely dry um, you know 10% moisture and they have completely green stems on them that they can't get through combines and so um, you know they there is something about this um, you know these cool dry temperatures that we have in the fall and then the frost that we do get here that is that is beneficial for us it definitely puts a termination on our on our growing season and ends our yield accrual but uh, from a from a harvest standpoint and seed quality standpoint and then you know of course on the weed side as Dave mentioned it, it does it, it is quite beneficial for us I want to talk a little bit about 
temperature as it relates to sugar beet harvest. So we have two harvest seasons. We call the first season pre-pile, and it starts about the 15th of August this year, and those beets go straight to the factory. So then um, approximately the 1st of October, we call the season stockpile, or bean, um, not beans, that's Zach, um, sugar beets that are piled at our piling facilities. And some of those beets are at the facilities until early May. So we did not start on the 1st of October as we intended because the temperatures were too warm. Um, and we also had some areas that received some rain. So harvest is really started in earnest, I would say Saturday. So Saturday, Sunday, and we're expecting a very, very productive week this year, up and down week this, this week, um, good harvest this week, up and down the valley. Um, we're expecting to make extremely good progress at getting the crop out. I should mention that we're talking about the week here now of October 9th, just for a timestamp of when we uh, are talking here on this particular podcast uh, in situation. So, um, Tom, it seems like as I think back on years, we, we deal, sugar beet farmers deal with rain, late rains and, and deal with the mud every year, it seems like. But then these sugar beet farmers are also growing corn and soybeans and small grains in some areas as well. And so, um, and many of them are quite large farmers. And so they're dealing with these multiple crop harvests. Uh, is your sense that a lot of those folks were able to use that delay in, in um, the, the beet lifting to get out and get a lot of soybeans and corn cuts so that they could, they could really focus on sugar beets now? Or can they really put all their effort and all their employees towards that? Is that, is that going to help them? I think so. So it's a real good question, Seth, and I want to get Zach's viewpoint on that as well. But farmers try to to, they're very flexible during harvest season. So when it's too wet to dig sugar beets, they immediately look at the other crops on the farm. And I would think soybean would be the first one on the list where they would pivot to try to get the soybean out. And especially if we have good stock strength and our crop corn crop is, is standing well, they would wait for corn to the end. Um, so during those warmer days, taking out soybeans, and now that the temperatures are back and, and conditions are, are dry, get the sugar beets out. And it's a race to get sugar beets out. Uh, we're working 24 hours a day to take advantage. And once the sugar beets are out, they'll probably go to um, the remaining soybeans and then back to corn. Tom, you mentioned uh, to me before we started the podcast a little bit about some of it, and you alluded to it as well here this morning, uh, your research plots. And can you talk a little bit about some of those research efforts and some of the preliminary results? So the research program is, um, it's, it's, it's a month-long harvest campaign. So we started um, approximately the 15th of August. And we still have one more week of, of harvest left. 
So a, a typical location will have approximately 300 plots that we need to harvest. And it takes us a full day usually to harvest uh, a location. So we can harvest a plot every minute approximately. And um, we this year we had um, 12 locations north and south in the valley where we harvested sugar beets. So where we harvest, Dave and Seth, is dependent on the weather. We try to be very flexible and go to the areas that are, are dry or fit for harvest. And I will tell you that our, our yields are very well. So um, I'll say this, the first week of harvest was extremely dry and um, they were hard to dig. But since we've received the rain, the beets have dug better. Essentially, we've had very little soil-borne disease all season. So the quality of the beets are excellent. Um, we didn't see any leaf spot until late, so we didn't have um, a loss of canopy, which, by the way, will help us in the event we do see some frost conditions during the next week or 10 days. So all told, Dave, our, our plot harvest is um, going well, and we're very pleased with the yields that we've experienced. Um, we had a, a breakdown last week, but it also rained. So we fixed up our equipment just in time for fields to dry, and, and we should be back in the field here today. Okay, well, I'll, thank you, Tom. I'll take this back to, to Zach a second, and we're kind of talking research and yields and, and things. So there's been a lot of us talking in this upper Midwestern region um, with very different kinds of environments, but the, the common theme this year has been dry, unusually dry weather. Uh, but what all the agronomists that I've been talking with are just a little bit, not necessarily shocked, um, but quite surprised on the positive side for yield. So what, uh, from a research perspective, and you can, you can, you know, push the genetic side as hard as you like on this, but uh, how do you feel? Um, where did these yields come from in your region? And, and what are you most surprised about uh, up, up in your area? Yeah, that's a really good question because um, I think we've been experiencing that over a period of time, and there's absolutely no question that the genetics are a big part of it. We go out into some of these cornfields that had pretty dry conditions, and and in the past you might see barren plants and serious nosing back, and and we don't see any of that. It's it's really uh, if if any of you if you haven't and you ever get a chance to tour uh, like a, a like a pioneer genetics facility, uh, one of the offices where they do a lot of the research. It is a phenomenally high-tech industry. And uh, so there is a lot of investment that's going into research and that research is is resulting in, in some in definitely improved genetics and able to handle stress and able to yield through it and plants are able to hang together and that sort of thing. And I heard this on your last podcast too, you're kind of asking about, about that. And I remember uh, it, it goes back a lot of years, but uh, Vern Cardwell did some work on trying to uh, determine what what to attribute genetic or what to attribute yield improvement to. And uh, in, in his work, 
uh, it ended up being about half and half, if I remember right, about genetics and management. And so uh, it's always hand in hand. It's it's both that are, are working. And so when you get improved genetics uh, and you add that to improved management, then you get this, then you get, you know, these, these yields that are better than expected. So that's, uh, you know, starting out with really good stand establishment and fertility management and, and all those factors, all those management factors, good weed control, all those factors going together. So the genetics have definitely improved, uh, but so has the management. And, um, you know, I, I, I think about um, some of the big factors in agriculture, the things that are the most important. And uh, I, I put it this way, that there's only a few things that we can kind of consider magic in agriculture. And one of the things that we consider, that I consider on my magic list is pretty short. It's manure. Manure is, is as close to magic as we get. And then there's tile drainage. And then there's irrigation. Um, so those are those are the things that really attribute to uh, uh, better yields over time. And maybe more even up here in the Northwest than in Southern Minnesota, the the uh, drainage game has has really improved over the last 20 years. And this is a dry year, so maybe you wouldn't see as much of it, but surface drainage and tile drainage, and we're seeing more irrigation. So so we're uh, all of that is contributing to consistent higher yields. And so part of your job is actually evaluate these varieties and hybrids for both yield potential and yield stability, right? Is that part of what you do? And you're looking in, in making sure that, that Pioneer brings the best stuff forward for the farmers. Uh, you're looking for a combination of things. And I'm sure that that seems like really right in your wheelhouse in terms of your position to make sure that that um, these varieties and hybrids come through that 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 do well for everybody, but also have some really high yield potentials and probably want some variation out there too. Is there anything you can speak directly to to some of the things that you look for when you're looking at yields across your region and you got a lot of locations and and how do you um, you know I know there's other people looking at the data, but uh, what do you what do you see when you look at all that variation out there? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. It's always a combination of yield and agronomics, and you've got to bring them both, and you're, and you're always making concessions. And so, obviously, yield yield for moisture is critically important, and we're always looking for that, but it doesn't help if you can't bring it to harvest. So it's harvestable yield. So for corn, I always look at the big four for me on corn, our stalks, roots, brittle snap, and gosses wilt. For our region up here, those are the big four uh, and we look at all other agronomic traits too, of course, but those are the big four. In soybeans up here, it's iron fluorosis tolerance, it's cis nematode resistance, it's phytophthora tolerance and white mold tolerance. Those are the big four traits. And uh, along with yield, you have to bring, um, you know, at least adequate tolerance to those to those traits, or um, you're going to run into all kinds of, of production issues, and you're not going to be able to to bring it to yield if you can't, if you don't have those agronomics that go with it. So the agronomics are, are obviously really important. So your data that you're collecting then does go into the book then as part of those numbers one through 10 or 10 through one that you're um, providing with those. When, when you do release these varieties, when they come through, some of that data that comes through on, um, on those uh, characteristics of varieties and hybrids is, is actually out of your program then. Yeah, some of it is, Seth, but actually a lot of it is done 
by a research group out of the Moorhead Station prior to me ever seeing them. And they do that because they don't want to do late stage testing on products that have serious, you know, agronomic issues associated with them. So uh, the trade scores that you see in the books that you refer to, there is a mountain of data that goes behind every trade score. And uh, that, that, that's a lot of really hard work done by a, a, a lot of people uh, that are out in the field taking all those scores and doing all those measurements. So that, that is a huge part of the whole genetics game is, is doing that trait, trait analysis. I think, Seth, uh, you did a good job in here in, in terms of uh, helping to get to the point of where we're talking about 2024 uh, in terms of the situations with that. Um, so, Zach, uh, and, and I guess for Tom both, but we'll start off with Zach. If we think about uh, 2024 coming up, and we talk about some of the things that have to do with uh, selection and variety selection. I guess maybe one thing I want to pick on a little bit here, Zach, is uh, soybean cyst nematode. And you alluded to that in terms of that. What's the current situation um, in northwestern Minnesota? I know it's it's been you know higher situations than perhaps in southern Minnesota. Is there going to be a continual need or... Um, uh, with that, it's always been, you know, indicated as probably one of the top, if not the number one situation in terms of, of dealing with. But uh, what's your perspective on that? Obviously, um, there are things you can do from a genetic standpoint and a, and a trait standpoint. Uh, but what about management? What about these uh, these growers should uh, consider and rotation? We indicated that. And then uh, we'll go back over to Tom and talk a little bit about uh, 2024 as well. But uh, Zach, you want any comments about that or anything else? Yeah, I'll try to make it short because cyst is a big, big issue and kind of complicated. But cyst is continuing to expand throughout our region. Uh, we've got cyst nematode going all the way up to the Canadian border, and it's spreading less to the west, but up and up and down the valley. Uh, we're looking at it used to be where if you were a, an early group zero soybean, if it didn't have cyst resistance, you know that would that would be okay. We'd have a lot of acres for that. And more and more, we're looking at putting a cyst resistance trait in every variety, uh, including double zeros, because uh, cyst is just is just continuing to expand. And it cyst cyst does really well in our world. It it's not too cold for cyst or anything like that. It it survives very well here. And this past year was the worst cyst pressure I've ever seen. It for whatever reason it really ramped up. Um, that is an area where we're continuing to uh, to try to identify new sources of resistance. The ones we're working with are old, uh, 95 plus percent of the cyst resistance is PI88788, and about 5% is Peking. And we're working with the Peking trait to try and integrate that into more varieties. Um, we're And we're looking at other, other um, traits, uh, biotech traits too. To uh, to help with cyst resistance because cyst is a and we call it, we call it resistance but it's not I mean it's a, just a higher level of tolerance in our soybean variety so uh, rotation definitely helps and we just got to keep on top of it uh, because it's a big big issue and getting worse. Okay, uh, we can come back to that maybe a little bit, but uh, we'll jump back over to Tom and talk about 2024 here. You know, in a sugar beet world, you know, we're you know obviously we have rotation. Um, in a certain number of years, you can get into that. But you think about um, from a weed perspective, maybe also a, bit, a little bit from a yield perspective, or if farmers are going to be planting sugar beets in 2024 in some of these areas, what, what, 
recommendations um, do you have or uh, have in mind for at least northwestern Minnesota? So two messages that I'm going to be articulating during winter meetings is I want to go back to the 2023 growing season and really make sure the producers understand the rainfall patterns on their farm, in their field, and take a look at records for possible carryover, carryover. So our labels um, and our NDSU technical materials will indicate what the rotational restriction is for um, said herbicide to sugar beet the following year. But Dave, those are just averages. And what really matters is the growing conditions on um, their farm. So I'm going to really emphasize to producers to look at rainfall records, microbes break down herbicides, soil microbes break down herbicides, and microbes need water. So um, I, I know that there are places where we're going to see some herbicide carryover concerns again in, in 2024. So that's number one. The second one is herbicide-resistant weeds. And people immediately say, oh, he's talking about glyphosate again. No, it's more than glyphosate. Um, there's a number of active ingredients now that are important in small grains. Um, there's active ingredients in soybeans. There's a number of different products where we have carryover, or excuse me, um, um, herbicide resistance concerns. And those weeds that we didn't get this year are going to make seed and they're going to influence what we do in subsequent years. So really taking a close look, again, not what's averaging, what's happening at the regional level, but what's happening local and make sure our producers are, are keenly aware of resistant weed challenges. All right. Very good. Um, any last comments uh, for uh, all three of you, for, for Zach uh, and, and Tom and uh, Seth here as co-host, uh, as we close out uh, this particular podcast, uh, things that we didn't touch on that uh, we want to get in? I'm glad that uh, Tom talked about weed management. I mean, we got some, uh, some weed science experience on the call here. Uh, that's kind of where the roots are. And um, Weed management is all of a sudden way more difficult, more complicated than it was. We had a, just an unbelievable easy button with Roundup for a long period of time, and that is over. And all the things that we used to know before Roundup regarding tank mixing and adjuvants and spray volumes and timing have become way more important. And, and I'm glad that topic came up because I think as we look forward to the challenges in agriculture, um, one that's changing and it's changing really rapidly is weed management. And people people need to, growers need to ramp up their weed management game because if you miss it, uh, your fields are infested with water hemp and palmer and resistant kochia and uh, growers really got to get, they got to ramp their game up on weed management um, because it it's changed. It's changed really rapidly. And if, if you don't get in, in front of it, it will get in front of you. Any other? Dave and Seth, I'd like to remind everybody of safety during harvest. So there's a lot of trucks running up and down the roads now. 
Um, some of the trucks are carrying mud out of the field, so the roads are a little slippery. Be careful for farm machinery and trucks carrying grain or carrying sugar beets as you're traveling um, in rural areas. And I want to remind everybody that those trucks are out there 24 hours a day. So it doesn't matter if you're driving in early to work um, or when you go home uh, late in the evening. There's a lot of trucks out on the roads. Um, and, and chances are they're not traveling as, as, as fast as, as, as you are in your vehicles. Well, thank you, Tom. Good advice. Um, we're going to uh, stop the program here in, in terms of that. I know we could go a lot longer, but um, everybody's got things to do here in the fall season. So we're going to be respectful of, uh, of your time and, and our listeners' time uh, as well. Um, so uh, once again, we'd like to thank our guests uh, for this uh, uh, program today. Uh, Zach Forey with, uh, um, as agronomist, a pioneer of Corteva in northwestern Minnesota, along with uh, Dr. Tom Peters, uh, sugar beet weed specialist out of North Dakota State University and University of Minnesota, and uh, also my co-host here, uh, Seth Nave, University of Minnesota Extension soybean specialist. This has been another episode of the University of Minnesota Agronomy and Extension podcast, Minnesota CropCast. Thank you for listening.